Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. A new study published in the American Journal of Public Health last month profiled how, by using mathematical modeling, America can reduce the death toll from the opioid epidemic. My guest today is Allison Pitt, a researcher from Stanford University, who, together with Keith Humphreys and Margaret Brandau, completed a dynamic modeling study of the health benefits and harms of public policy responses to the opioid epidemic. Allison joins us now to share the results of that study. So, Allison, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Now, let's start with kind of, can you put it in layman's terms, describe what dynamic modeling is to begin with, and, and how it can be used to analyze the health benefits and harms of public policy addressing the opioid epidemic? Sure. So, dynamic models are a way to essentially evaluate the flow of individuals um, in a population between health states. And so if we can, over time, track where individuals are in terms of different health states, be it um, using opioids or um, perhaps in pain or in an addiction-related state, we can then be able to assess what's the impact that specific interventions will have if we can target those interventions to the rates at which individuals transition between these different health compartments. The health compartments would be, okay, one of them is I'm not in pain and I have no prescriptions. And maybe the next one is I break my arm and I'm given painkillers. So I'm in that next bucket and so forth and so on, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. So you, within those models, you analyzed 11 interventions, I believe it was? Let's go through those a little bit. Sure. So we looked at several interventions that are largely targeted um, to reducing the um, availability of prescription opioids. Perhaps that's not their intended um, effect, but that's effectively what they do. So we looked at reducing the prescribing rate uh, for acute pain, for pain that's transitioning um, from acute to chronic and also for chronic pain. So what happens when we reduce the likelihood that an individual who has that type of pain is actually prescribed opioids? Uh, we also evaluated the effect of reducing renewals for uh, opioid drugs, um, as well as changes in the formulations. Can I, let me go back. What's renewals? So this is when uh, an individual's prescription, let's say it was for three weeks or a month, what happens when they run out? Do they, are they, is it easy to renew the prescription and get another month's worth? Okay, and just so, refilling the same prescription. Yes, yeah. okay. exactly. And so additionally, we evaluated uh, prescription monitoring programs um, that are multifaceted in their purpose, but for the um, purpose of this model, 
the effect is to reduce the chance of an individual who has addiction, um, reduce the chance that they're able to get prescribed uh, these drugs. Uh, we also looked at um, the disposal of excess opioids. So you may see in your local pharmacy, there's a bin, essentially a safe bin for returning drugs that are no longer needed as opposed to having them sit in a medicine cabinet where perhaps others can access them inappropriately. Yep. A lot of them are giving out bags now as well. And you've got the police departments that have disposal bins in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this also essentially reduces the um, supply of opioids. Um, and additionally, drug reformulation, this is to make uh, opioids harder to abuse. While it doesn't um, explicitly reduce the supply, it reduces the kind of supply available for um, abuse, if you will. Um, and so those are the seven um, interventions we evaluated that really target the supply side. We also looked at four interventions that are uh, intended to reduce the harm uh, associated with uh, addiction. So we looked at increasing the availability of naloxone, um, needle exchange programs, um, to decrease the um, chance that someone who is injecting heroin um, might contract um, a disease from used needles. We also looked at um, MAT, that's uh, medication-assisted treatment. Uh, so this is buprenorphine, methadone uh, treatment um, as a replacement for opioid, illegal use, rather. And... Uh, finally, we also um, projected what if we were able to scale up psychosocial treatments as well. Next, Allison talks about the 11 interventions that were studied, seven that restrict the flow of drugs on the supply side of the equation, such as modified prescribing practices for chronic and acute pain, and four on the harm reduction side, such as expanding needle exchanges and Narcan availability. The study revealed the impact of each over a 10-year period. Allison talks about that. Yeah, so we, we had to have some sort of base to evaluate our policies against. Um, and so while we recognized that the data needed to um, build this model was, you know, it's not readily available. There are lots of stats that disagree, lots of stats where there's really no good um, good sense of how accurate it is. And to be fair, uh, the epidemic looks different in different areas of the country. And so coming up with one number for a lot of these things um, admittedly is challenging. Um, And so we didn't want to focus too much on, you know, what is the projection of the current state? However, we did need to project it so that we have something to evaluate these policies against. Um, And so when projecting this current state, we estimated that over 10 years, we'd see about half a million um, deaths related to opioid use. And so as you studied those programs and looked at them together in the mix, I think it's kind of fascinating that um, some of the programs that you would assume that would help mortality actually went in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. So what we found is that several programs, particularly those you know that were targeted to aggressively reducing the availability of prescription opioids could have an unintended effect of increasing deaths, um, particularly those from uh, heroin use. So the question becomes, you know, for those 
individuals who are dependent on uh, prescription opioids to sustain their addiction, what do we do for them um, by reducing the availability of these drugs? Without many other options uh, readily available to turn to, it's conceivable that they may turn to heroin use, and that um, is more deadly um, than the use of these drugs. And so that's the trade-off that we faced. While we are intending with a lot of these policies to um, reduce addiction, while we may reduce addiction, new addiction essentially to um, opioid pills, for those who are currently addicted, that could be uh, disastrous for them because they don't have um, the supports available to turn to and will instead pursue heroin. To add a little bit more context to our conversation, I think some background on pill mills is in order. Our country was first introduced to the pill mill business by David Proctor, who practiced in South Shore, Kentucky, which is just across the river from Portsmouth, Ohio. An article in the Cincinnati Magazine, I think, that appeared uh, last July, sums it up best by putting it this way. No physical exams were given. Only cash was accepted as payment. And patients were in and out of the doctor's office in minutes. When pills hit the scene, many in the impoverished region were ready to embrace an underground economy, obtaining pills at pain clinics and then selling them at a premium on the street. That provided a much-needed source of income. Due to the town's location near the convergence of three states, it was easy for prescriptions to slip through the cracks in prescription monitoring programs, or PMPs, and difficult for law enforcement to investigate and prosecute doctors across state lines and in other jurisdictions. Add highly addictive and heavily marketed opioids, such as OxyContin, to the mix, and sophisticated distributors like Proctor, and you've got what Sam Quinones refers to in Dreamland as the town that led the country into the opiate epidemic, ground zero in the pill mill explosion. At one point, there were more than half a dozen pain clinics in operation for a county with little over 75,000 people. With the help of House Bill 93, the anti-pill mill legislation that was signed by Governor John Kasich, the last clinic was finally closed in December of 2011. By that time, much of the addicted population had already transitioned to black tar heroin, supplied by the Mexican cartels. Today, the area remains a public health crisis due to heroin, fentanyl, and carfentanyl opiates that offer a more powerful and cheaper fix for addicts who can no longer afford the pills. The lessons learned about opioid addiction transition to heroin from closing pill mills applies to all supply-side interventions. Definitely uh, a lot of speculation that that is um, what has driven a lot of the spike in heroin deaths. Yeah. So did you determine kind of an optimal mix when you looked at um, all of these different interventions uh, in terms of saving lives over a longer period of time, 10 years? Yeah, so we looked at we looked at several combinations of interventions because we found quickly that no one intervention was going to do the trick, if you will. Um, the impact of each of these in isolation 
um, in terms of positive impact can be pretty small. And so we looked at several combinations. We didn't set up this as like an optimization model where we tried to identify what is the, you know, highest, um, I guess, return in terms of lives saved. Um, that would have required a little bit more of a um, technical uh, capability than our model had. However, we did look at several combinations when we were able to understand kind of what what are some that have the most bang, um, not necessarily bang for buck since we didn't evaluate costs, but what has the, the largest impact. And so when we combined reductions in prescribing, so prescribing for acute pain, transitioning pain, chronic pain, um, with several policies um, that mitigate the harm from addiction, so naloxone availability, needle exchange programs, um, medication-assisted treatment and psychosocial treatment, as well as disposal programs. We found that over 10 years, we, we were able to project a 10% reduction um, in deaths relative to that um, estimated half a million number, which, you know, seems kind of small because, you know, it's going to take us a long time to dig our way out of this, um, unfortunately. And so really being um, aware of kind of the extended period of time that it may take for a lot of these policies, particularly those that impact the supply of opioids, to have the positive um, you know, benefit, the reduction in deaths as opposed to just increasing deaths in the short term. Allison and her team learned that any combination of interventions involving expanded treatment and harm reduction had a positive impact, and there was no downside. That is what we found. However, we know that we cannot um, have the impact that we need to see without also bringing in the programs that will reduce the chance of someone newly becoming addicted to opioids. And so that's where it becomes trickier, where we need to combine uh, policies, some with these uniformly beneficial impact, um, but also policies that are going to treat the root cause, um, reduce the incident addiction, if you will. The study revealed an opportunity to intervene and offer help when drug-seeking behavior is detected and individuals who are doctor shopping are flagged in the prescription monitoring program. Yeah, what we found is that it's really important um, to pair these kinds of policies that are able to target, you know, this is a potential um, abuser of these drugs. Um, but we want to um, also equip this individual. Now that we've identified them, we need to equip them with tools in place. If we're not going to be providing them with um, drugs, what we want to do is direct them towards treatment. And so looking at ways to pair these prescription monitoring programs with programs that will direct these individuals to um, MAT, medication-assisted treatment, or psychosocial treatments. Um, how can we do that? That's going to be key to reducing the harm associated um, with these um, interventions intended to um, reduce new addiction. So have you seen programs out there yet that, that do that? I can't speak for that. Um, I'm not so familiar with uh, specific programs. Prescription drug monitoring programs were mainly started to allow law enforcement agencies to request information as part of investigations into possible pill mills. 
which feed illegal trade and all kinds of DEA-scheduled substances. But they could be used for other purposes, such as an indicator for those needing to be referred to treatment. Allison talks about how that could come into play. You know, I might consider some sort of case management approach where we could um, follow up with individuals who have been flagged by the system and um, ensure that they are receiving the tools, the information that they need in order to get to a, um, a treatment program. So maybe it involves identifying, well, what are the barriers in place? Why haven't they, if they have not sought treatment before, why haven't they? Or if they have kind of been in and out of treatment, how can we um, reduce the friction that is causing them not to stay in treatment? So maybe, it's, maybe there's a problem with the transportation to get them to treatment. Um, I think it really will have to be a somewhat individualized approach um, in order to make sure that uh, those who are addicted to these drugs and um, dependent on um, prescription pills, if they are no longer able to get them, we need to know exactly kind of what is it for this individual that they need in order to get them um, consistently going to treatment and uh, on the path to recovery. This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. Allison, what else did you learn during this study that surprised you? Um, well, I was really shocked at the time scale um, that it's, it suggests that it may be before we see a real reduction in deaths associated with opioid addiction. So we, we looked at several of these policies, and you know, even when we changed our assumptions to make them, you know, seem more effective, it was still going to take a really long time. So over five years, we saw a very small effect. Over 10 years, you know, there's certainly um, improvement. Some policies that did not look so attractive over five years become more attractive over the longer time horizon. But it may be, you know, 20, 30 years for some of these before we see um, the effect where reduction in the supply of opioids and, you know, the reduction in new addiction that follows, we may not see the benefit from that for, you know, 20, 30 years out. Allison speaks on the trade-offs to consider when evaluating interventions. There's certainly a trade-off there. And, you know, our model was somewhat simplified in that we didn't have to consider at this point cost, but we have to consider that each of these programs has a cost as well. And so as we think about the trade-offs in terms of effectiveness, we also need to think about, well, where are we willing to spend our dollars today? Where will we spend our dollars tomorrow? Next, we talk about another factor, political will, that comes into play when weighing all the options for interventions. So one of the things I think this study highlights is that while, you know, sometimes there does not exist the political will um, to provide services to those with addiction. Um, we do have to think about what what is the trade-off here. Um, and so we'll consider, for example, needle exchange programs. Um, in a lot of areas, 
it's not considered an acceptable program because we don't like the idea of uh, providing this service to individuals. Some some would say, it does this um, encourage the um, use of right. uh, injection drugs? It um, it, right. And so, how do we how do we think about that? Um, we can see here that this is one of the the programs where it seems to not have a negative impact in terms of deaths um, for those who are addicted. That's who is targeted by this program. And so when we are um, creating these portfolios of policies, this should be an option that's on the table. Um, We can't just look at how do we target all of our efforts, those who are not already addicted, how do we reduce the supply, because that could mean terrible things for those who are suffering with addiction. And so I think this model really highlights that we can't put all of our efforts just toward uh, reducing the chance of someone who's not addicted becoming addicted. We can't be punitive in that sense. Um, And so I think that's one of the major major takeaways here that policymakers should... um, should note is that by purposes to those with addiction, um, we can make a huge difference in terms of um, the um, kind of impact of the, the portfolio overall. So I want to go back to a concept that we talked about just a little bit earlier, and that there is some policies that, re- such as reducing the prescription opioid supply, that may be beneficial um, on one level, but harmful at the same time when you look at it in the big the big picture, if you will, because people move along and get addicted to heroin. Were there other surprises such as that, which on the surface, they look like they'd be completely beneficial, but then it surprised you because when you looked at the big picture, nope, it, it turned out to be different. Well, I, I think you summarized it well. It's really those those supply, um, supply impacting policies. Um, really, each of those seven supply impacting policies, redu- reducing... Um, prescribing for pain, um, for various types of pain, reducing the ability to get a refill, um, programs that target um, those who seem to be abusing the drugs, um, prescription monitoring programs, uh, even reformulation of drugs that make them harder to abuse, um, the disposal of excess drugs. So all of these, we we see that the impact over the short short um, short term, rather, is detrimental in terms of the total deaths. Uh, but it's when we extend to longer periods of time, we see the, the arc, um, the trajectory change there. And so that was one of the things where we found that as we evaluate different programs, they have kind of different lengths of time that we have to wait in order to see um, them becoming beneficial as opposed to harmful. It seems to me that, you know, going through a process such as this for virtually any community would be very, very beneficial. But communities just don't have the, the funds, the resources to do this. But are there some takeaways that they might be able to use in terms of some kind of a, a process to analyze, again, you know, the programs that they have in place and the interventions that they're going to use and compare them to get some kind of a a feel for what the outcomes will be when they looked at, look at them collectively. Yes, I, I believe that evaluating each of these programs that you know, are targeted to reducing the incidence of addiction, reducing the supply of drugs, we have to evaluate them with a critical eye and say, are we doing all that we can to support individuals 
who are no longer able to access drugs in this way and are depending on that. And so I think for every program that we have in place to reduce the supply, we should be thinking about what are we doing for individuals um, who, are in, who are depending on this. How can we support them on the back end? How can we increase treatment? Are we putting enough dollars, dollars towards treatment? How do we evaluate kind of the balance of um, money towards treatment versus money to prevention? Sure. Allison, I want to thank you for joining me today. Would you have any final comments for our listeners? I think your the study is fascinating. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that, you know, this is really just one example of how modeling um, can help us to identify the right direction to go in terms of policy. This is not a new approach necessarily. It's one that's not used enough. Um, but modeling is uh, a key um, tool to really have for policymakers to evaluate kind of the bigger picture impact of actions. Was there anything that you weren't able to do in this study that you wish you would have? I would have loved to attach um, cost because a lot of times when we are, you know, evaluating policies, we have to consider, well, there is a budget. Um, and so not every uh, intervention is going to be easy to affect, right? And so we have to have um, view of what's actually feasible. And so we've made some assumptions around the effectiveness, but we have not made any assumptions around how much each of these costs. And so we would ideally like to have been able to say, what's the bang for buck here? Perhaps a follow-up study? You know, we have talked about it. I am unlikely to be the one to lead the charge on that since I've taken a, a new position, but I know that there are some that are interested in um, attaching costs to this study. Well, once again, Allison, thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My guest today has been Allison Pitt, a researcher from Stanford University, who, together with Keith Humphreys and Margaret Brandau, completed an eye-opening study of the health benefits and harms of public policy responses to the opioid epidemic. Their research revealed that three measures, specifically a 25% reduction in prescriptions, greater access to naloxone, and greater expanded methadone treatment, could together reduce overdose deaths by 6,000 people over a 10-year period, compared with the status quo estimate of roughly 50,000 lives. The paper's daunting conclusion that all these measures can only make a small dent in the death toll is a measure of magnitude of this crisis. The researchers hope that their model could become a springboard for policymakers to take more vigorous action. To learn more about the study, go to ajph.org. That's the American Journal of Public Health. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources, Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.